In the name of Jesus, I invite you to hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear God, we do give you thanks again for this word. We trust you, Lord, that it will be all in which you intended to be in our lives, shaping and molding us. Make it so, even now we pray. In Christ our Lord we ask. Amen. Please be seated. If you would, grab your Bibles. Just as Jerry said, we can't underplay the power of the Scripture that God has given to us. I personally think that it's always helpful for us to attach something with our eyes as we are hearing God's Word, and therefore I think it's helpful to have the Scripture in front of you. We have them in the back. If you don't uh, have one, you can easily take it. What I'd like to draw your attention to uh, this morning is the passage that I just read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. So Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, I want to draw your attention to this in part because it splits itself so nicely into two different components. The first part, working with the first verse, verse 14, they're talking about the circumstances of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So what are the circumstances surrounding Jesus' ministry? The second part, really focusing upon the content, what is the content of Christ's ministry? What, what is it that he did while he was here? What, was, what were the things in which he said? And so we have a division here between the circumstances, verse 14, uh, and then the content, verse 15. I think you can see that fairly clearly here. Verse 14 breaks itself, itself into three different ideas, three things in which I think we can note. Uh, the first is here, now after John was arrested... So Jesus' ministry begins here with a chronological marker after John was arrested. And it's easy to see that and understand that. One of the things that people naturally ask is, well, when did this take place? What, what are we talking about? When are, when are things happening? Well, we have a chronological marker here after John the Baptist was arrested. This is John the Baptist that um, Jerry read about earlier. After he was arrested... These things began to take place. Jesus began going into Galilee and preaching and those kind of things. So it functions as a chronological marker, but you notice that there's no date attached to it. Uh, now that's, I think, by and large the way in which we tend to think of chronology or chronological settings. What time period or when did this happen or when did that happen? You can associate it in terms of, well, this was in 19... 63 or whatever, uh, to set the time period for in which something happens. Uh, if you do spend some time with people that are getting older, however, you notice that they are less attached to dates and more attached to significant events that took place in their lives. You know, oh, this happened after I graduated from high school, or this happened once we got married, or this occurred uh, you know, with, uh, when this particular event took place with my children or something like that. I get a chance to spend uh, some time with folks as they're getting older and asking them about stories in their life. Very rarely do they say, oh, this happened in 1960 or something like that. Usually what they say is, oh, this happened early in my marriage or something along those lines. Uh, so here you can see kind of the same thing happening. The chronological marker is not a particular date. It's an event 
And it's a significant event. It's an event that I believe most people would have been able to associate with early on in Judea and the surrounding areas. John the Baptist was that kind of a popular figure that it's kind of talking, for instance, like we would speak of uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated or something like that. We date things by particular significant events. But that's certainly not the only thing that is intended by this phrase uh, after after John was arrested. I think primarily what's happening here is not so much a chronological marker as a tone. We're setting a tone here for Jesus's ministry. Uh, If we're uh, understanding the Gospel of Mark written correctly, it was written somewhere in the late 50s, early 60s, right around the time where Nero began his persecution in Rome of the Christians. And so it's no surprise that right off the bat, Mark wants to set the tone of this gospel for us to remember that the ministry of Jesus is a ministry that happened within the context of suffering, of pain, of turmoil, of injustice. The whole concept of the gospel is impossible to separate from the realities of the suffering and the difficulties and the in pain of life. Now, that doesn't mean that that's all the gospel is. Uh, many of us who have experienced the power of the gospel know of the overwhelming joy and the overwhelming uh, excitement and being drawn into God's presence and the, the blessedness of worshiping with God's people, all the things in which we talk about with the gospel, we know that there's this powerful, positive connotations that are associated with the gospel, and so they should be. But nevertheless, and this is something that, for whatever reason, the church fails to communicate well to the world. Our message is a message that means something to those who are suffering. It connects to those who are in pain. It arises itself. Jesus' message arises itself out of difficulties and indeed immense suffering. What we're going to see is to some extent, not that John the Baptist is a precursor to Christ's death and resurrection, but you can kind of see it there. And so when Mark begins to speak about Jesus' ministry, he sets the tone originally for us by saying, look here, remember that this is a gospel message, and the gospel message is one that connects to all those who are suffering and are in pain or in turmoil. People can be tentative to come to the gospel when they are struggling, and we can be short at sharing the gospel with people that are suffering. And instead, that's the milieu That's the surrounding material in which the gospel itself was born. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Galilee, the setting. Uh, Now, it works itself out nicely where about half the time in the gospel records, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and about half the time he's in Galilee. And Galilee is an outpost. Galilee is the hinterlands. Galilee is is, uh, you know, West Virginia. I don't know, uh, Galilee is, is, is a, a, a hard place, tough place to do ministry. 
And yet Jesus spends about half his recorded time in Galilee. Jerusalem is the center of the world in so many different ways. It's a metropolitan hub of life. And Jesus spends about half his time there. As we see as we move along, that concept of Jesus spending time in Galilee, so much time in Galilee, and Jesus spending so much time in Jerusalem is going to shape the way in which we understand the gospel message. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, what do we mean by proclaiming the gospel of God here? This is not that Jesus came talking about the gospel of God. Proclaiming has, uh, has the sense of authority behind it, a uh, sense of power, and not only authority and power, but a sense of expectation. If I tell you that my oven is on the fritz, you know, if I say, hey, my oven's on, which it is, by the way. Um, that's why I'm looking so thin and lean. Uh, if, if, if we say my oven is on the fritz, overwhelmingly for you, I am merely just communicating information. There's no expectation, unless you happen to be a handyman or somebody that sells ovens or something like that. I'm just giving you a piece of information. I'm telling you something that I think is interesting, that you might find interesting, those kind of things. That is not proclaiming. When Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, when he speaks the gospel message, he, and notice that it's not just teaching the gospel. Teaching is a part of the gospel. Communicating information is part of the gospel. But when Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, what he's doing is he is asserting truths that he has the expectation that it will change your life. That's the difference. When you proclaim something, you are communicating with authority, you are communicating with power, but you are communicating with the expectation that it is going to change somebody's life. These are the circumstances of verse 14, that it comes with the tone, the overarching shaping tone of remembering the suffering uh, and the difficulties that are attacking God's people at this particular point. That it happens in Galilee, that's where Jesus starts his ministry that we'll get to at other points in our time together. And that Jesus comes speaking in such a way that he has the expectation that it is going to change your life. If that's the circumstances, what's the content? The content of Jesus' gospel proclamation is in verse 15. Go ahead and look at this if you get a chance. You can kind of see where there's like four elements here. You could think about it in terms of four different elements. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So you kind of see it as those four kind of things. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. I'm going to argue that that's not the way we should see it. We should not see what Jesus says here as he's proclaiming the gospel. And here's a definition of the gospel for you, these four elements. I actually think that the text should be read a different way. Not that there are four different aspects to the gospel message, but rather what Jesus is saying, here is the gospel message, and he gives three different ways of understanding that gospel message. He has three different ideas here behind the gospel message. The first is the time is at hand, the time is fulfilled. That is a way of understanding the gospel message. My guess is if somebody came up to you and said, what's the gospel of Jesus Christ? Most of you wouldn't phrase it in terms of, well, the time is fulfilled. But that's the way Jesus does. 
if we were somebody come up to you and say, how is, what's the gospel message? I don't know that many of us would say the kingdom of God is at hand. But that's what Jesus does. And Jesus finally, the third way says, repent and believe in the good news. These are three different ways, three different definitions for the word gospel, for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, as a body of believers, what can be more important for us that we have a good handle on what the gospel is? What holds this group together? It's not the building. It's not ultimately our relationships. It's not ultimate. It is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so what could be more important for us than right here at the beginning of the year to get a good handle on the gospel message? So what is the gospel message? The time is fulfilled. Jesus says, this is the gospel message. The time is fulfilled. Now, we don't think like this. This is not necessarily part of our thinking. Uh, But it shouldn't strike us too surprising to remember that the most cosmic event that happened in all of history is the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, you've got creation. Next to creation, what is the most momentous thing that has ever happened in this world? It's not the wars, it's not the creation of the United States, it's not your birth. What is the most momentous thing that has happened in all of the world? It is the coming of Jesus Christ. But that's just not accidental. This represents a turning of the ages. And this is the scriptures talk in terms of the old age, that which was, and the new age, that which is today. And we spend way too much time still living as though we are in the old age, the way that was, and missing out on the fact that no, the time has been fulfilled. What was is now wrapped up, and we are moving into a new era, the new messianic era, the era of Jesus Christ. And this is the way in which we are called to understand the gospel message, that the gospel is, look, what was is no longer holding on to you. So I went to bed the other day, this was, uh, well, this was a couple months ago, and my team was losing, and I went to bed, and I was grumpy, and I woke up grumpy, and I got to the office grumpy, and then I found out that the team had won. And I didn't, you know, they, they came back after I went to bed, and everything was different. Now, the reality is that the team had won the previous night, and yet I went through that period of time grumpy because I was living in the old age and not living in the new age. We have been flipped, every believer in this room, in a second of your life, if you can identify that time period or not, it doesn't matter, but in a moment of your life, you have been changed from the old age, to a, from a person who lives according to the old age, to a person who lives according to the new age. It happens in every marriage. Every marriage, you go from one thing to another in a minute, In one minute, you go from being single to being married, and yet everybody who has gone through that transition realizes that it takes a lifetime to live faithfully into that new reality of your life. What 
the gospel calls us to is to realize that something brand new has occurred upon this world. Something totally different than what you were ever thought of or what you could ever anticipate on your own. Something brand new has happened. And then the gospel invites you to live faithfully according to that which is new. The time is fulfilled first. The second picture that Jesus gives here for the gospel message is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this immediately evokes lots of questions. What, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, you know, what's the rule of God like? What is the reign of God like? What's the realm of God like? And all of these questions are appropriate. All these questions are right on. They're really helpful to understand the gospel. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, we immediately say, well, what does that look like? What, what is that? What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? And blessedly, Mark spends a lot of time in his gospel recounting the deeds of Jesus Christ as Christ goes about articulating what it means that we are part of the kingdom of God. So we will understand more about the kingdom of God as we go along. But I think we miss Mark's point, Jesus' point, if we focus on the what's of the kingdom of God. How, what's it look like? How does it function? How, how does it impact my life? Because that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, is at hand. Sometimes it's translated in other places. The kingdom of God is near. Um, now, we have to fight against the tendency to think of the nearness there as temporal. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is near to us time-wise, that it's going to show up here really soon or something like that. That's not what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is like the king. Imagine somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, I brought you a gift. What's your natural tendency? To look in their hands, to look around them. Well, where is the gift? You know, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's like, the kingdom of God is at hand right here. Jesus is pointing, highlighting himself as the key cornerstone to the kingdom of God. That's the gospel message. The kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, is here. I uh, had a great relationship with my mother-in-law, really enjoyed her. She, is, uh, she passed on about 10 years ago, and it's hard to pick on somebody who's dead, but I'm going to anyway. Um, uh, I had a good relationship with my mother-in-law, and at one particular time, uh, I, w I woke up early. She was milling around in the kitchen, so the two of us are talking in the kitchen together. We're having a good old time. Uh, I thought we were getting along really, really well and enjoying the, you know, maybe uh, 15, 20 minutes together. The phone rings. She picks up the phone. She starts talking to the neighbor, and she says to the neighbor, oh, yes, this is a wonderful time. My daughter and her children are here. I'm standing there going... You know, we just spent a half an hour together really getting along here, and I don't even merit a mention. I don't even, you know, I don't even. How many of us approach the gospel, think of Christianity, think of our faith exactly that way, and do that absentmindedly? It's not that my mother-in-law doesn't think of me or like me or any of those kind of things, or realize that I'm important to the family. All of that is true, but 
that's not what sprang to her mind when she thought of her family. What springs to your mind when you think of Christianity? What thing springs to your mind when you think of the gospel? Is it, wow, all the things that we can do? Is it grace? Is it, is it the way in which we can function well as a community? Is it the way we can share the gospel with other people? It's supposed to be Jesus Christ. He's the one that's supposed to jump out at you. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. And that's what changes everything. The kingdom of God is at hand. Finally, the picture that he puts forward, repent and believe the good news. Repentance. To repent is to change, is to have your mind changed. To turn. To turn away from what you were doing. To turn away from the ways in which you were going. To turn from sin. Repentance is to change your mind, or have your mind changed. Repentance is not the same thing as sorrow. My mother used to tell me that it was a great thing. I had this wonderful gift that I never got away with anything. Um, I, I would always get caught on anything that I ever did, and so I spent a lot of my life feeling bad. I spent a lot of my life feeling sorrowful for the bad things that I had done. That's not repentance. It might be a natural outgrowth of repentance, that emotional expectation of sorrow and sadness, but that is not repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's not hiding your sin. It's not a commitment never to do this again and putting it aside. It's not a decision of your will. A repentance is a transformation of who you are, a turning away from sin and a turning to something else. That's why repentance and believing go together. Repent and believe the good news. To believe the good news is not to acknowledge its truthfulness. It's not to come up with the right answers to the catechism questions of what is it, you know, who is God or what did Jesus do. To believe the good news, to believe in Jesus Christ is to trust in him to rely upon him, to turn your life to him and give yourself to him. Just like the gospel here proclaims that the new age is upon us, that something radically different is here, and you have a responsibility. You are now called by the gospel to live into that new age. Just like the gospel proclaims that the kingdom of God is here, and the gospel now moves you, challenges you to embrace Christ as the center core of your life. So the gospel message calls to each one of us, repent and believe the good news. And so to turn from that which was and to turn towards and lean into Jesus Christ. If you haven't guessed by now, we are going to start a series looking at the Gospel of Mark. Here in the spring, we're going to go through the first five chapters together, and we are going to have a constant refrain that we're going to be fo focusing on. Who is Jesus Christ? Because that's the essence, that's the core of the Gospel. The Gospel, according to Mark, proclaims one thing, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, the time has come, repent and believe the good news, 
It focuses upon Christ, and that's what we're going to focus on together as well. Building off of what Jerry said earlier about the importance of the Scriptures, for me, nothing is going to be as important for you to be reading the Gospel of Mark along with me. And so I'm going to bribe the kids under 18 here. Uh, If and when you read the Gospel of Mark, if you're under 18, come up and talk to me, and we will get ice cream together. Okay, wherever you want to get, we will grab ice cream together if you're under 18. And by the way, I know some of you are not under 18, so don't try this on me. But I I want everybody, all of us here, to commit ourselves to be reading the Gospel of Mark. We're going to only work our way through the first five chapters right now, but the the whole Gospel is yours. Let us read that so that we might hear again and see perfectly that picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you gave to us in Jesus Christ. That indeed the times have changed, that we are under a new world now, that we are part of the kingdom of God. We have repented and believed that you are our Lord and Savior. We need to do that each and every day to express our joy and our love for you, our Lord, our God. We thank you for the calling of your ministry, the calling of Uh, the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.